At the last hour, I was finishing Roman numeral three of the history of millennial interpretation, and particularly the hermeneutical implications. If there is a place where people have most problem in maintaining a consistent uh, approach, uh, consistently literal approach, it's in the area of uh, prophecy. Uh, I'd like you to take the article that I handed out to you that I wrote on the current status of dispensationalism and its eschatology. Let me review just a couple of thoughts from it, please. That's <clears throat> the current status of dispensationalism and its eschatology. If you do not have your copy with you, perhaps look on with somebody else who has one next to you. I'll be moving through several pages of this. On page 164, the second page of your sheet, prophecy. Uh, I'd like you to take the article that I handed out to you that I wrote on the current status of dispensationalism and its eschatology. Let me review just a couple of thoughts from it, please. That's <clears throat> the current status of dispensationalism and its eschatology. If you do not have your copy with you, perhaps look on with somebody else who has one next to you. At the last hour, I was finishing Roman numeral three of the history of millennial interpretation and particularly the hermeneutical implications. If there is a place where people have most problem in maintaining a consistent uh, approach uh, consistently literal approach, it's in the area of uh, prophecy. Uh, I'd like you to take the article that I handed out to you that I wrote on the current status of dispensationalism and its eschatology. Let me review just a couple of thoughts from it, please. That's <clears throat> the current status of dispensationalism and its eschatology. If you do not have your copy with you, perhaps look on with somebody else who has one next to you. I'll be moving through several pages of this. On page 164, the second page of your sheet,
we've dealt with the basic principle of dispensationalism. I'm not wanting in this course to expand a definition of dispensationalism because you've done that in other courses earlier. But I would like to speak to what I think is uh, some confusing thinking, even among dispensationalists. We, we um, don't always express ourselves as clearly as we would wish to, and we can, by that, uh, lead people to believe that we think something other than we think. A great example of that is uh, C.I. Schofield himself, when the note on John chapter 1, when he said the law is no longer a uh, test of obedience for salvation. Uh, Schofield never did believe that uh, uh, one was saved by keeping the law in the Old Testament. <coughs> but his statement caused people to think that that was what he was believing. Uh, yesterday I mentioned to you Oswald Allis in his book Prophecy in the Church. If you will read that book carefully, you will find there are statements there that sound just like Schofield's statement. There are statements that would sound like Oswald Allis believed that one was saved in the Old Testament by keeping the law. He did not believe that. So we need to see a man's total theology and interpret the individual statements in the light of what we know he is believing. And uh, I think there is uh, here another area for clarification. Page 164, 165. What are the principles out of which this system grows? At this point, much confusion has been propagated by both dispensationalists and non-dispensationalists. Theological conclusions have been substituted for premises or principles. Please underline that. Theological conclusions have been substituted for premises or principles. In other words, the end result has been put back in the beginning as the cause. In response to the question, quote, what then is the sine qua non of dispensationalism? Charles Ryrie gives a threefold answer beginning with, one, a dispensationalist keeps Israel and the church distinct as the first thing. And he agrees with Daniel Fuller that the basic premise of dispensationalism is two purposes of God expressed in the formation of two peoples who maintain their distinction throughout eternity. And quote, at this point, we should remind ourselves that a sine qua non is an indispensable thing or that which is absolutely prerequisite. Thus, we are told that the absolute prerequisite of dispensationalism is two peoples of God that maintain their distinctions throughout eternity. I would say that's fallacious. But in fairness to Ryrie, it should be noted that he says this is probably the most basic theological test of whether or not a man is a dispensationalist. The seriousness of this confusion of principle and theological deduction is seen, however, when George Ladd picks up on Ryrie's sine qua non and states, quote, this conclusion rests upon a second principle, that of a literal system of interpretation. My conclusion, one must confess that it's difficult to understand how a conclusion can be the first principle which rests upon a second principle. 
Uh, obviously, the sine qua non of dispensationalism is not two peoples of God. Uh, the sine qua non is literal interpretation, a single hermeneutic. Other systems of interpretation will say, for example, we believe in literal interpretation as the normal approach to Scripture. But there are certain areas where we must move away from the literal interpretation of Scripture. And they will therefore go on to enunciate why they move away from that. Some of those uh, I have included in this paper. So I think the, the uh, statement by Erickson on page 166 is more to the point. I think he understands it better here when in the second paragraph he says, what then is this basic hermeneutical tenet? Erickson rightly analyzes that the first tenet of dispensationalism is that the Bible must be interpreted literally. Now, I would beg people to not misconstrue what we mean by literal, that we do not mean letterism. We do not mean a wooden-headed approach that fails to understand the different literary genre that are used in the Scripture for, experiencing, for expressing God's truth. That a literal statement may be expressed in a plain literal way or a figurative literal way, either is literal. And figures of speech are not antithetical to literal interpretation. And I know that's not the first time you've heard that. But even though you've heard it a dozen times, somebody will go out and make a statement that puts the two in antithesis. And you will teach people in a way that does that. And I want to do everything I can to combat that. Uh, to not give people the impression that a figure of speech, an allegory, a metaphor, a simile, uh, hyperbole, personification, or whatever, is an occasion to leave the literal principles. It is not. A figure of speech is simply a more vivid way of expressing a literal truth. And I must find out the meaning of the figure of speech as used by the author. I, I cannot use that occasion to read into it whatever I want to read into it. Now, on the page 167 and following then, I seek to clarify this basic principle as I have done just now, starting with the quotation of William Tyndale uh, concerning figures of speech and moving on uh, through that particular section. Now, uh, on page 168, I've uh, suggested the credibility of the basic principle. Uh, we have said that this is a singular uh, hermeneutic. We do not believe in a dual hermeneutic, literal for some parts of Scripture and allegorization or spiritualization for other parts of Scripture. Now, does such a consistently literal approach to prophecy have any strong support in Scripture? That's the top statement on 169. And I begin there by quoting from uh, 
<coughs> Dr. Weingarten, Martin J. Weingarten, who was, uh, uh, the, who is the late professor, uh, professor emeritus at uh, Calvin Theological Seminary. And this is his book, one of his books, The Future of the Kingdom by Martin Weingarten. And the subtitle of the book is A Study of the Scope of Spiritualization in Scripture. So you, you know right off the bat what direction you're heading in the book. Now, the first chapter is entitled The Wonders of Jehovah's Prophecy. And the question under that is, were any Old Testament prophecies fulfilled literally? Any of them? The conclusion of that chapter is, now the very remarkable thing, this is in italics, the very remarkable thing is that those fulfillments are so exceedingly literal. The problem of interpretation thus raised is one of great interest with a view toward attempting to discover the sphere in which spiritualization of prophecies takes place. And one wonders immediately, why would one insist that spiritualization must ever take place? If all of the prophecies that have been fulfilled to this point have been fulfilled literally, would not a simple approach or assumption be that the prophecies which have not yet been fulfilled will be fulfilled in the same way as the prophecies that have been fulfilled have been fulfilled? Why are we shifting? Unless there is some preconceived idea about the relationship of Israel to the church as we interpret the New Testament. And thus, in these uh, remaining statements under the credibility of the basic principle, I have run through that, and I have also quoted at length from Van Ruler's work which I have given you longer sections uh, as a handout. Uh, the real issue is not our theology. The real issue is hermeneutics at this point. And it's not mill versus post-mill versus pre-mill. It is literal interpretation versus spiritualizing, which is no different in kind than allegorizing. It is only different in degree. And I really think that we need to have that clearly before us if we're going to solve any problem. Uh, what the real issue is. It's a hermeneutical issue, not first a theological issue. And that's why I quoted from uh, some of the dispensationalists as well, as well, who would make this thing a theological issue to start with. I don't think the issue is two peoples of God throughout all eternity. And, and in fact, as a matter of fact, I have a hard time seeing where they get the idea of two peoples of God throughout eternity. Two peoples of God within the program of God on earth, I can understand. Uh, but it seems to me that the ultimate of Romans chapter 11 is one olive tree, not two. And that the pieces are brought together. Uh, the wild branches and the natural branches are all part of the same olive tree. And somehow, I prefer to believe that in eternity future, this will all be brought together into one. Uh, 
but not until God has fulfilled every promise he has made to every entity of people on this earth. And therefore, to spiritualize the promises that God made to Israel to make them have fulfillment in the church, I think is a mistake. And I agree with the statement that uh, Van Ruler makes when he says, at this point, we must also ask to what end God is present in Israel and has dealings with it. Is it solely or supremely for the redemption of man? Can one view the Old Testament in so one-sidedly soteriological a light? Does not redemption take place rather for the establishment of the kingdom of God? In other words, is there not a purpose that is bigger than the church, bigger than Israel? bigger even than salvation of man, namely the glory of God and the kingdom of God? I think Van Ruler is far more on target at this point. And thus, I think dispensationalists and non-dispensationalists need to clarify what the real issue is. The real issue is one of hermeneutics and deciding whether we're going to go for a single or a multiple hermeneutic. Now, departing from a single hermeneutic may seem innocent in some areas. Uh, for example, if one says we uh, normally interpret the Bible literally, but when it comes to the area of the millennium that we uh, spiritualize at that point, we must understand that uh, God is not going to actually reign in Christ on earth for a thousand years with the church over Israel, etc., etc. And uh, we, we want to spiritualize that away. We want to make that be what God is doing today in the church, etc., etc. And uh, one uh, amillennial scholar of great repute said to his class in his seminary that uh, if we are wrong and the premillennialists are right, then uh, we'll be there in that millennial reign on earth, right with them, so nothing is lost. No problem at all. Uh, all right, no problem at all. If Christ will reign on the earth, he will reign, no matter what we think about it. He will reign. Uh, so we say that's no problem. Uh, but we back up a step from that and say, well, what about the tribulation? Well, we must understand that the tribulation is not to be taken in a literal sense. Uh, we all experience tribulation. And therefore, when you come to statements like uh, the Great Tribulation or a period of time such as never was on the earth, no, nor ever will be again, uh, these very specific statements about that, we just kind of smooth that over and say those are expressions of the tribulation that we all experience. And after all, if God is going to take us out of the tribulation, we're not going to go through it, then he will do that no matter what we believe about it. Uh, and if we're going to go through it, uh, God will protect us through it. I've heard some people say, well, you know, uh, what's the matter? Are, are you afraid? Don't you know that God is sovereign and that God can protect you through that? You bet I do. And if it's God's purpose to take me through the tribulation, I have every confidence that he can care for me in that, even if it's through death. Uh, because there are plenty of people who will die in that period uh, who will be uh, God's people, martyrs, that will be resurrected at the end. Could God take care of me in that? Certainly he could take care of me. That isn't the issue. 
The issue isn't what God can do. The issue isn't even theological deduction. The issue is consistent hermeneutics. Now, so we say, well, God will do what God will do no matter what I think he will do. Uh, well, if we can apply that hermeneutic to the millennium and to the tribulation and to the rapture, why cannot we apply it to all of prophecy? Why limit it to one sphere of prophecy? Namely, the millennium and the tribulation. Why not apply it to the uh, coming again of Jesus Christ? After all, when I read uh, John 14 and Jesus says, I will come again, the tense is what? It is a present tense. Uh, it is not seemingly talking about a, a single future act. And so one great commentator says, Jesus comes again and again and again. I am coming again. I am coming again. And so how does Jesus come again? Every time I lose a loved one, Jesus comes and meets my need. Every time I suffer, Jesus comes and meets my need. Jesus comes and comes and comes. And you must not get yourselves all balled up in that kind of earth-centered eschatology that has this idea that, that Jesus is going to come down to this earth. He's going to crash through the clouds and, and he's actually going to reign on this crass carnal earth. Uh, you must divest yourself of that kind of thinking and understand that Jesus comes spiritually. He meets my needs regularly. That sounds good, doesn't it? I mean, that's got such a devotional flavor to it. <laughs> and there's good grammatical basis for it. I come again and again and again. Uh, or, why limit it to eschatology? Uh, why not relate it to the rest of theology? So that when Boltmann relates to soteriology and the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, he tries to divest us through his demythologizing of Scripture from those weird ideas that would think that Jesus actually died in our place on the cross. How could another man die for you? Every man must die his own death. Every man must die for his own sins. The best that can be accomplished is to see the great love example that Jesus made on the cross. And so what Jesus did on the cross, you and I ought to do on the cross. So would say or so would have said Boltmann before he died. See, there's no stopping point. When you start spiritualizing Scripture, there is no logical stopping point. If it can be done with the millennium, it can be done with the tribulation, it can be done with the second advent, it can be done with the cross. You don't have any scripture left once you start spiritualizing scripture. And that little overlay that I showed you in another class, he who spiritualizes tells spiritual lies is one that I really ought to get in my mind spiritualizing, allegorizing, leaving the historical grammatical meaning that the author had in his mind in order to devotionalize the scripture. Be careful of it.
You might do it for devotional purposes. You might do it for uh, theological consistency with your system. Be careful that your system doesn't demand you to leave literal interpretation. In other words, if I can give a literal interpretation of the passage, then a person who spiritualizes it is bound to prove why he needed to leave the literal meaning when indeed there was a possible literal meaning for the passage. Or if he insists on allegorizing, then why not do that in everyday conversation? And our everyday conversations would be utter confusion. We would no longer be able to communicate with one another if we chose to allegorize what the other person was saying. I've got to understand what they mean in their own terms. So, I have been amazed that a man could write the first chapter that talks about the exceeding wonders of the literal fulfillment of Jehovah's prophecy and then say, what now must be the principle for interpreting the prophecies that have not yet been fulfilled? I would say, interpret it by the same principle as we have interpreted in the past. Namely, everything that God said can be fulfilled literally, but I must understand the literary genre that he is using in his speech. There is no place ever for allegorization. You do not leave the historical, grammatical interpretation of a passage. If a passage contains an allegory and you interpret it as not an allegory, what have you done? You've allegorized the scripture. You've spiritualized it. You have failed to explain it in keeping with the meaning of the author. If an author uses a figure of speech and I interpret it as though it's not a figure of speech, I have spiritualized it. Now, oftentimes, people who are hard on others who spiritualize prophecy will regularly spiritualize history. They'll go back to the Old Testament, take an epic narrative from the Old Testament, and spiritualize it all out of context with what the author had in mind. I don't have the right to do that. Some people do that under the aegis of expository preaching. They'll take a long historical narrative and say that they're preaching verse by verse, and they'll take one verse one Sunday, the next verse the next Sunday, and they read everything from any and every thing they know into that passage that has nothing to do with what the writer had in mind at all. That's allegorizing. I don't have any more right to spiritualize history than to spiritualize prophecy. And uh, if I were to attribute... Uh, the errors, uh, I would say probably that many of the premillennialists have spiritualized history and many of the amillennialists have spiritualized uh, prophecy. And we ought to both stop it. And we ought to get back to the literal interpretation of the Scripture. Now, uh, that's uh, basically what we want to get across in these pages 259 to 261 of Dr. Cook's notes. I am not going to go into the uh, specific principles that he draws to your attention there. You can go back and rehearse hermeneutics again. Uh, you can look at the law of consistency and the law of fulfillment, the law of time relationship. All of those things are simply extensions of 
grammatical, historical interpretation. Uh, so, um, I will not uh, emphasize that as such. You have any question? Uh, you want to go back once more and take one quick look at uh, at this to see where we've come from then in the historical development of the doctrine. No question, the early church fathers were Kiliasts, millennialists, premillennialists. Uh, the point of departure from that was the point of allegorization with the Alexandrian school, primarily Origen, Gaius, Clement of Alexandria, etc. That would not have gained a hearing had it not been that the method that Origen developed, not his theology, but the method that Origen developed, uh, was a handy method for Augustine to use in resolving the problems he had with regard to church and kingdom. And by making the two synonymous, he really gained a stranglehold on the church. And you see that in his work on the kingdom of God. And basically, Augustine, as a great theologian, being turned off by the excesses of the Kiliasts, went the other direction, and that became the theology of, of eschatology down through the Reformation. And even though the Reformation provided a return to hermeneutics, to the original languages, to literal interpretation, even though they damned allegorization, the fact is they kept it in eschatology. They did not cleanse the eschatology of the Roman church from the allegorization that they had used with regard to uh, eschatology. Uh, amillennialism was succeeded basically by uh, Daniel Whitby's postmillennialism uh, with the advent of World War I and World War II and the threat of World War III. There was uh, a declining belief that things were getting better and better all the time. Uh, they didn't really look like we were bringing the kingdom in. And consequently, postmillennialism waned and uh, the amillennial forces gained strength again. That's the basic teaching of uh, Christendom, all of Roman Catholicism, and a large part of Protestantism. And it was not really until uh, Darby and some of his uh, predecessors, I would say personally uh, Coxius or Cosigius, as some pronounce it, uh, were uh, involved in developing the present state of premillennialism. And it's only been in the 20th century, really, the late 19th century and the 20th century, that we have seen the revival of interest in eschatology. So this doctrine is coming up for refinement now. Um, after class last hour, uh, I was asked about a name that I mentioned, namely James Orr, and his book, The Progress of Dogma. If your studies have not involved you in James Orr's book, that is a classic, uh, The Progress of Dogma. And in a, in a summary note, here's what he does in his book. He shows that the, the uh, development of doctrine historically is also 
a logical development. In other words, dogma uh, was first refined in the area of theology proper, uh, the Trinity, in Christology, in anthropology, harmartiology, soteriology. There, that was the historical development. And that is also the logical development that you would think of. First you need to clarify the doctrine of God. And then within that, the doctrine of each person of the Trinity, specifically Christology and pneumatology. And then you have to understand the doctrine of man in relationship to God. Then you have to understand the doctrine of the sin of man. Then you have to understand the doctrine of salvation. Interestingly enough, the logical and historical developments parallel each other. And thus James Orr said that it is yet to be, or rather uh, eschatology has yet to be refined. And he said that will undoubtedly be the task of the 20th century. And indeed it is. We are refining that area as we get closer and closer to the coming of Jesus Christ. This basically then is where we are today. And, and by far and away, the interest today in the written materials is on the premillennial system, which is applying a literal interpretation of Scripture to the area of eschatology like it has to other areas of theology. Now, on pages uh, 261 through 265, Dr. Cook gives you a sweep through the... Uh, system of eschatology that is the result of a consistent literal interpretation. And in your reading, uh, up through page 74, where you read for today in Dr. Ellison's book, you have uh, the prophets, God details his plans, and then uh, Daniel's prophecies, God sets his time clock. I'd like to do, in the next 10 minutes, uh, an overview, not from the standpoint of the covenants, which we have already been through, but from the standpoint of Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. Um, let me put on the screen here Abraham and his successors uh, do not relate it specifically to a timeline. The covenants are more general than specific as it relates to time. And therefore, the people of God uh, were constantly wondering, uh, when will all these things take place? And in Daniel chapter 9, you have God's answer to... Uh, the concern of his people, and particularly the concern of one man. Uh, each time I go back to this chapter, Daniel chapter 9, I am impressed that the most significant prophetic statement, probably the most far-reaching prophetic statement in the entire Word of God, came as a result of the uh, deep felt prayers of a man. In uh, the first verse of Daniel 9, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, 
of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord given through Jeremiah the prophet that he should accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Uh, keep your finger in Daniel 9 and turn to Jeremiah 25 where Daniel was reading in his devotions that day. In Jeremiah 25, Daniel is reading the prophets. Remind yourself that Daniel is now an old man. Uh, he went into captivity as a young man, perhaps 17, 18 years of age. And he has now been there almost 70 years. So he is a man in the late 80s as he's reading this passage. In verse 11, or beginning with verse, uh, let me begin with verse 8. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all of the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land. Going back to what we said earlier about God's sovereign intervention in history. Not intervention, God's sovereign control regularly. Uh, here, what does he do? The heart of the king is in his hands. <coughs> and God brings Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan man, against his own people. God uses a pagan man to whip his own people. against its inhabitants, against these nations all around, and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment, a hissing, and a perpetual desolations. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years." Then it will come to pass, when 70 years are completed, that I will punish the king of Babylon, the very one that he brought against them. He'll now punish them. And that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. So I will bring on that land all my words which I have pronounced Against it, all that is written in this book, which Jeremiah has prophesied concerning all the nations. Well, Daniel is reading that in his devotional time. And he says, Lord, according to my calculations, it's just about time. Uh, and so he begins to pray. And this, uh, this prayer teaches me a volume of things. We, we often wonder, what should I pray for? When I don't know what the will of God is, how do I pray? I think a good pattern is set here. Pray what you do know the will of God is. Pray the promises of God. And so Daniel read what God said he would do. You might say, well, Daniel, if God said he would do that, then why are you praying and asking him to do it? If he said he will do it, he will do it anyway. And I find people like that in prayer. They're so locked into sovereignty 
that they don't believe they need to pray because whatever he will do, he will do. But the interesting thing is that when God, when Daniel reads God's promise of what he will specifically do, it doesn't cause Daniel to shrink from praying that God will do what he said he would do. Amazing thing here. Verse 3, Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and, and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. We have sinned and committed iniquity. You go through this prayer and you say, Daniel, is that you praying? You're the man that they couldn't find anything against. They wanted to destroy him, but they couldn't find anything against him. And yet Daniel confesses his own sin. What a lesson for us. He confesses his sinfulness, his shamefacedness, and then he relates to the promise of God. And he says, God, these are your people. This is your holy city, Lord. And these are your people. And uh, therefore, you're responsible for them, Lord. You've promised to take care of us. And we just count on you that you will do it. And he, he implores God. He pleads with God on behalf of his people and his holy city, Jerusalem. You come down then to verse 20, and it says, Now while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, and notice how he repeats it, while I was speaking in prayer. In other words, I hadn't gotten through praying yet. And that teaches me that prayer is not simply informing God. I am not giving God information that he doesn't have. As a matter of fact, he says, while I was speaking, while I was praying, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen at the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening oblation, and he informed me and talked with me and said, O oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I've come to tell you. When did God answer Daniel's prayer? Before he got started. At the beginning of your supplication. God didn't need to be informed. God needed a man who cared and showed that he cared. And at the beginning, God gives the answer. And he says to Daniel, you are greatly beloved by God. And because you are greatly loved by God, here's the answer. And the answer to Daniel's prayer is the spelling out of the rest of history, basically. In a very carefully articulated way. Now, if you want to go into this study of... Daniel's 77s, uh, the book by Sir Robert Anderson called The Coming Prince. By the way, this is a whole set of reprint of, uh, of Sir Robert Anderson's books in paperback now by Craigle. Every one of them is a treasure, and I have been particularly blessed by The Silence of God, The Gospel and Its Ministry, and The Coming Prince. But all of Sir Robert Anderson's books have been reprinted. He was 
by the way, a detective in Scotland Yard. He was not a, a preacher, but with the mastermind of a detective, he really approached the Word of God. And uh, in The Coming Prince, he uh, has that whole book on Daniel 9, 24 to 27. If you want a summary of that, a good paperback summary of that is Alva McLean's book, uh, The Seventy Weeks of Daniel. Alva, A-L-V-A, McLean, the same one that wrote the large volume that you are reading uh, for class. His small book, a very excellent summary of this. Now, what does he actually say in the passage, just briefly? Seventy-sevens are determined for your people, for your holy city, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. That's all that's going to happen as a result of God's plan. Now, how and when is it going to happen? Know, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. Don't get it mixed up with the command to build the temple. The command to restore and build Jerusalem <coughs> unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens, or a total of sixty-nine sevens. The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublous times. That's in the seven sevens. And after sixty-two weeks, after these sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Uh, notice that the cutting off of Messiah comes after the 62 weeks. The 62 weeks would take you up unto Messiah. I, as I look at this, I see this chart is not yet exactly clear. For the 62 or 69 sevens would take you up to the triumphal entry. That's unto Messiah, the prince. And then after, notice that carefully, not at the 69, fulfillment of the 69 weeks, but after the 69 weeks, Messiah will be cut off and something else will happen after the 69 weeks and before the 77s. And what is that in the text? And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end of it shall be with the flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. So after the 69 sevens, or after the 483 years of 360-day prophetic years, after that, two things will happen, among others. Messiah will be cut off. Jerusalem will be destroyed. The next thing he says that shall happen, sometime future, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. That is, this prince of the people that shall come, he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week or one seven. And in the middle of the week, after three and a half years or three and a half sevens, he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and, and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate. Uh, 
and that shall tie you in to the Great Tribulation, which in other parts of the Scripture is called <clears throat> the time of Jacob's trouble, or is called the time and times and half a time, or is referred to by the number of months, or the 42 months, or is referred to by the three and a half years, or the second half of Daniel's last week of the 490 years. So that we are today between the 60, the end of the 69th seven of prophecy and the beginning of the 77th, 70th seven of prophecy. In this particular scenario, which we will continue to unfold as we go through the rest of the quarter, uh, God, in an answer to Daniel's prayer, gives him a specific delineation of the timeline for Israel. God, who controls all things then, can tell him exactly what shall take place in the future because God is the one that shall bring it to pass. The covenants that we had earlier are the overall overarching purposes of God for his people. And he will fulfill what he said he would do to Israel, which has its ramifications beyond Israel, to all of those who are in Jesus Christ. That's the overall general picture. The specific timeline for it is that which he gives in Daniel's 70 weeks of prophecy.